Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening and welcome back to Tango Angeles and welcome back to you, Ronaldo. I am so happy to be back in the studio at UBN after a long, hot summer away from here. I'm so excited to be uh, behind the microphone once again and speaking about my one of my favorite subjects, tango. One of the highlights of my summer was accepting an invitation to celebrate the national holiday that kick-started the Argentinian independence, 25 de Mayo, May 25th, at the Argentine Consul's residence uh, right here in Los Angeles. And as we were entering the raised garden of the Consul's residence, I noticed right in front of me there was a distinguished-looking man accompanied by an equally distinguished and elegant lady. And I wondered to myself, because he looked vaguely familiar, I wondered whether this could possibly be. And then... You got it. The Mission Impossible theme coming from the DJ station filled the air. And of course, it was Lilo Schifrin. It was uh, staggering to see him in person, and not so much because I'm one of those starstruck kind of people, because after all, I do live in Los Angeles. But for someone like myself, whose childhood was spent growing up in Argentina, and much of what we were exposed to was defined by movie and television themes, which include many of what Lalo produced. It was always a big event when my family would gather around a small black and white television and watch these American-made shows. And the actors speak Spanish, dubbed, of course. How we loved everything American, I remember. If you're not familiar with Lilo Schifrin's body of work in Hollywood, let me remind you. Mission Impossible, Dirty Harry, Bullet, Cool Hand Luke, Rush Hour, Enter the Dragon. I mean, think about it, all ultra cool. And there are so many, it's almost impossible to name them all. Later on during the festivities, we entered the residence's library where Lilo was sitting comfortably on a leather sofa, keeping company with 
many folks eagerly awaiting their turn to speak with him, including yours truly. Having accepted the mission, we arranged for an interview at Lalo's home in August. We were ushered in into a very large and elegant, yet very comfortably lived-in home. We conducted our interview, actually, in a separate detached studio in the back, which, as it turns out, his wife Donna had arranged to be built and has an English kind of atmosphere to it. Very cool. So today, October 4th, 2017, our fall season premiere, we bring you the man, the musician, and the ultimate cool cat, Lalo Schifrin. In the first part of our interview, right off the bat, you will have a very good measure of who Lalo is as a human being. And yes, he is a hugely successful man whose success no doubt is very well deserved. And of course, it could easily have gone to his head, but no, not Lilo. He made us feel very welcome in his studio, and he told me right in the very beginning, don't call me maestro, this is not about my ego, call me Lalo. And so here's Lalo talking about his signature tune, Mission Impossible. This is a very momentous occasion for Tango Angeles to speak with a man with such huge volume of work. It is a pleasure, it's a bit more than a pleasure to visit you and talk about things. And also let me tell you that one thing, you should not call me Maestro, call me Lalo, because I believe in that we are all colleagues and I don't take myself too seriously. I'm no narcissist. Thank you, Lalo. I want to read you a quote uh, because this is a great way to begin our interview. And this is something that was written by Bruce Lee. And um, you worked with him on the movie Enter the Dragon. Yes. And you, this is quoting you. Lee told me there was a 2,000 year tradition in martial arts. He had to learn all of the rules in order to break them. And so right away I found we had that in common. I studied classical music, centuries of European classical tradition, rules and regulations, things that you can and cannot do. And then we break all the rules. Exactly. That seems to define your, your, your body of work. Well, Maybe I said that, and it's true, I say that, but now that with time, I would like to 
make a comment about what I what I said is I didn't break the rules purposely. I was trying to expand the music horizons. The music horizons expanding. And by doing that, maybe I broke some rules, but that was not my intention. You probably wrote some new rules along the way. In breaking the rules, you probably created new rules. Well, I didn't want to create new rules. I'm not, I'm not rigid. That's why people think of people, no, uh, that's what is possible that I broke the old rules. But not not the, the idea of creating new rules. That was just part of a fluid, historical way of moving things around. But my my main interest was what I hear. It has to be not only here. I mean, in my mind. And what you hear inside of yourself. Yeah. Yes. That's what I. That's what drives you. Yeah. You know, um, when I was doing the background research on Yulalo, I was really uh, blown away by how many movies that you wrote scores for. And actually, I have to say, they're some of my favorite movies. You know, Mission Impossible and uh, Bullet, Dirty Harry, um, Starsky and Hutch. Oh, yeah. And, you know, all these things that I grew up watching these movies in Mission Impossible to this day. Every time I hear that opening theme, it's, I just, you know, I love it. Can I tell you something which is comic? We have to put a little, we shouldn't be too serious in this interview because that's not my personality. I'll give you an, an anecdote about what you just mentioned. You know, I, do you know the series of records I've done called Just Missed the Symphony? Yes. Okay, I was doing tours in Europe with a group of musicians, uh, uh, jazz musicians, a very small group, five, six, or sometimes three. I was one of them playing piano. And rhythm section, bass and drums, and sometimes well, I had a trumpet, a saxophone, soloists. I, I brought them from here, from the United States, uh, New York, okay, Los Angeles. So I did a whole series of these tours. The, the group of jazz was traveling, and then my, my agent, well, hired symphony orchestra. You cannot travel with a symphony orchestra. It's too, too difficult, to, and I would have to do rehearsals every time. So, I mean, with everybody. So we were traveling with the quintet, quintet, fourth, quartet, trio, and then get to different cities. With, and engage, engage in symphony orchestra local. So I play all over, and especially Europe, the Orient, I played in, in Japan, Hong Kong, uh, you know, all over Europe, the Orient, and South America, and North America. All, we played all over the, the cities. So in, when we were in Vienna, the land of Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn. Beethoven was not born in Vienna, 
Germany, but he moved to Vienna, he loved to live there. But there was a press conference, and one lady asked me, do you do any music? A little bit. You I know, played the accordion when I was very yeah, young. Yeah, but you know what the time signatures are. Yes. Two, four, like for marching bands, or three, four for waltzes, four, four for foxtrots or whatever. Uh, I I wrote a mission important in five. Dun, 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 dun. One, two, three, four, five, one, two, three. So one lady asked me, one of the press conference ladies, uh, she was a reporter or a critic, I don't know. She asked me, why did you write Mission Impossible in five? And I, in that moment, I didn't know what to answer. What do you answer to that? And my, my improvising instinct, in, right away, came out with an answer. And I said, I wrote it for people who have five legs. <laughs> And she wrote it down. And all the press there, I wrote it. and the, the next day in newspapers, magazines, technical magazines, music magazines, classical, they put Lalo Schifrin wrote in 5-4, and my agent was not there. He was in another city in, in Europe. He called me. I said, what are you trying to do? <laughs> so. And, and it's turned out to be one of the most iconic songs written for a movie ever. And yeah, I was lucky. You know, uh, what, what I'm wondering is, what, how do you come up with this? Do you read a script? Do you watch pictures? Do they give you, send you photos? This is what the movie's going to be about. Do you have an idea? How do you the, think that, of these? That, pers that particular Mission Impossible, First of all, I never like to write a script because my, the music in general has to have a rhythm, and I get the rhythm from the image of the movie done. That's why I get the rhythm. In this case, it's a parallel counterpoint. When, when, when the music is like in cartoons, the, the mouse does, the kind of on the tick, 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 and then tick, 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 tick. that's parallel. Sometimes it could be by uh, opposite motion. Like you could have a very sad scene in a movie where it's a very sad between a man and a woman. The, the, Terrible drama and tragedy, and but they, they, in the in the room where they are, instead of putting the violins doing, oh, I, I, once I told the director, why don't you put a television set there? They're playing a cartoon. <laughs> That's opposite portion. No, but th this happened. I did that. There's a movie called Telephone, with Charles Bronson, and that happened. Because I told the director that was a, otherwise it's too much. The scene was too, too tragic, and if I put tragic music, it's, it makes it becomes a too uh, redundant. Mm -hmm. And these are the all the things. In the case of Mission Impossible, this is interesting.
because this is the pilot of a television show. They, they were trying to sell, for see, to see if the, the, the companies, the, the stations, would buy this as a, as a show to stay for many, many, some stay like in seven years. And then movies are made, made too. I didn't write that theme because there was no, no way to write, there was no scene for that thing. The real Mission Impossible was, there was a secondary thing, which was, for me, for anybody, it was not secondary, it was their thing. Ta -da, ta -da, ta -da, ta -da. Remember that? That's the plot, I call it the plot. They are all plotting. So that was the thing. They, they, the networks liked uh, Paramount, liked it so much. They said, "Why don't, why don't I tell the composer to write a thing that calls the attention, because that theme is a very good for them for the series, but it's, it, we want to have a thing that when when people are in the kitchen having a soft drink, and the, the television set is." and the living room, they say, oh, Mission Impossible. So that's why I came up with this thing. That, that, that's what they call Mission Impossible. The other keeps me in the plot, and they, they use both. The, the, mainly the Mission Impossible thing was at the beginning and at the end of the show. For the main title and credits. And the rest was, I call it, the plot would be the mission impossible, and the mission impossible mission accomplished. <laughs> All right, welcome back to Tango Angeles. We are, um, I want to remind our listeners that if you're listening to us right now, we are broadcasting live from the Universal Broadcasting Studios and the historic Sunset Gower Studios. And it is, uh, again, October 4th, uh, Wednesday. And uh, we are going to talk about, um, in the next segment, about uh, Lalo's uh, father and what tango meant in his household. Of course, my mission here is to talk about tango, which um, is uh, almost impossible to do when we're dealing with a man that has created such a huge body of work. Also, during this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about his work with uh, Astor Piazzolla, two great classically trained musicians who also embraced jazz and tango and truly cosmopolitan, magnificently well-versed in various genres. And I wish I had been a fly on that wall. So take a listen and uh, we'll be back. Your father, Louis Schifrin, I know you mentioned him uh, earlier before we started the interview. He was a uh, concert master for the Philharmonic uh, Buenos in Buenos Aires at the Teatro Colón. Yeah. Was he a big influence in your musical? I know you, you studied with um, Enrique... Barenboim, father yeah. of Daniel Barenboim. Yes. But before that was your father, was, was how did he, did he influence your... Well, my father didn't teach me music. What, what he did was the atmosphere in my house. Uh, 
the only musicians. His friends, he, first of all, the Chifrin brothers, there were three. I mean, there were also, my grandmother had five, uh, no, eight children. I have five, there were eight. And the three males, uh, you know, my father was the oldest male, not, not the oldest child. And then he played violin. My uncle, Roberto Chivrin, he was cello, also the first cello of the Philharmonic, the same one. And then there was a third called Leopoldo Chivrin. He was also playing violin. So you can see that already. And all the friends of my father were flute. Oh, I had a, I had an aunt who also played, she played flute. Excellent, because it seems that my, oh, my grandfather was a choral conductor. And he put all the, all his children into music. So to me, there was no other. You didn't have a choice. No, <laughs> no, it's not a problem of choice. No, nobody for. I didn't know any other thing than music. I couldn't conceive me being a taxi driver. You know, it's it's like that. You grew up with tango in your home. My mother liked tango a lot. My father, no, my father was only in classical. He didn't care too much about popular music of any kind. No jazz, no, no tango, no nothing. He ignored it. Now he would have liked me to be a tango musician. And the truth is that at the time that I grew up, the tango had not made yet the evolution Musically, I'm talking. I know that it had great melodies. Uh, I think Gardel wrote, uh, sang beautiful themes, and the tango had, as a matter of fact, in the radio, we're going to a place to the other in, in, in the car, and the radio were playing the cuparcita. And I listened to that so many times, I started to make improvisations on the conversation. No, no improvisations. At that time, I didn't know any jazz. So I made a conversation as playing by Bach or by Beethoven. And I made arrangements. Improvis I never wrote them. I didn't even know how to write yet. Yeah. But I wasn't. And then that's what they liked. My father was. A, why don't you play these variations on the comparsita that you're playing? And when we had visits, you know, people visiting, and I had to sit down at the piano and came up always with something different. And they applauded, they liked it. You also played with Astor Piazzolla. Yeah, I have a, later on, I have a big picture in the wall of me and Piazzolla, who together. Tell us a bit about that experience. Oh, very nice, we got along very, I know that Piazzolla had, a, how do you say, fame, no fame, uh, fame, famous he was, no, I'm talking about his character. Uh, when somebody did with his music something he didn't like, he got mad, really mad. 
but not with me, because he liked everything I've done. He never had to be chinche with me. You understand? And to the point that when he recorded his concerto for Bandonio and an orchestra, you know that? That one I don't know. Oh, they, you can write it down as I your. It's very important because you should use it in your program, not only for me, but for Piazzolla and for tango. When, when, he, when, they, when he recorded his concerto for Bandonion and Symphony Orchestra, he asked me to conduct it. You know, for all the people, he knew all, great, all the great conductors, they knew him, then they would have been very, very honored to conduct that and he came to me. We, I was a, I am a quite a good conductor, but not like the big ones. And he asked me, and I recall it's the, the credits in the say, conducted by Lalo Schifrin. He's the author, and I, I was very pleased. One thing, you know, I learned a lot from that. Believe it or not, I learned from him a lot because he played, he said to me, I'm going to have the orchestra, I want rhythm, for me rhythm, and keep the rhythm, don't, don't, don't move it, ram, ram, or whatever. It was very, very sophisticated, but he write, he wrote, he wrote very, very good lines, and the orchestration was fantastic. I didn't have anything to do with the writing, only conducting. But he said to me, I, as a soloist with the bandoneon, I'm going to take a lot of freedom. I'm going to come slower or sometimes faster. In music, we say ralentando, accelerando, or also say rubato means uh, rubato means stealing. Rover, rubato stealing from one bar and giving back to the other. So he says, I play rubato. Don't pay attention. You can keep the orchestra in the rhythm. And he says, and that was for me great, because when you have to conduct opera, if the singers are also, they take a lot of. They don't even know they are taking a lot of free, uh, free, free tempi. You have to keep the thing going. So that, that's why I'm saying I learned a lot from him. His solos were free, but my, the, the orchestra had to be in tempo for always done. And there's another thing in which we got along very well, we became friends. He used to like, when I was in a city that he hadn't been before, and I showed, he wanted, he liked to, he was a gourmet, he liked to eat well. And when I showed him a restaurant, for the first time, we had the same, oh, he said, this food is fantastic. Not, not necessarily Argentinian restaurant. I showed him Cuban restaurants, restaurants from, from India, you know, or from, from Japan, sushi, ch 
China, and in Brazil, different kind of food. Welcome back to Tango Angeles. Um, I want to play a small piece of uh, this work that Lalo spoke about um, that was written by Astor Piazzolla and conducted by Lalo Schifrin, Concerto for the Bandoneon and Orchestra. This was um, played with the St. Luke's Orchestra in New York City. We obviously don't have enough time to play the entire uh, concerto. It's almost 40 minutes long. Beautiful piece. But we are going to play only one segment. In fact, the last segment, Allegro Marcato. Bright and staccato-like. Take a listen. Enjoy.
Welcome back. Our show this evening is brought to you by myself, Ronaldo, and my producer and engineer, EJ. And we are live this evening, broadcasting from the Universal Broadcasting Network and television studios at the historic Sunset Gower Studios. In part three of our interview with Lalo, we cover the next chapter of Lalo's life, an ambitious and curious young man seeking to push the boundaries of his classical training. Take a listen. We'll be back. You also worked with Dizzy Dizzy Gillespie. He was a big influence in your life. Oh, he was, I would say, the biggest influence. Because, as I told this, this has to do with the, my bio. I told you my, the story when I was a child and a young, well, a child. But when I became 16 years old, I didn't know anything about jazz. There was a radio station in Buenos Aires. I don't know if you remember, maybe you, you were not born yet. It was Jazz Moderno con Basualdo. Do you not remember? I don't remember Basualdo that. Basualdo was a disc jockey. And the, it was very rare in Buenos Aires to have a jazz uh, program. There was a advertiser called Tonsa shoes. Do you know that? No. Okay. They were selling, advertising Tonsa shoes. I don't know if they were Argentinian, probably they were Argentinian shoes. And Basualdo was, well, I knew him after that, but to that, I started to listen. And there were several records that he played. This is the time of 78, no, no, no CDs. And it was fantastic. That's why I discovered Dizzy Gillespie. There were many. There were some of them I didn't like. I won't tell you who I didn't like because I think negative things. But I did like a lot Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Thelonious Vogue and Bad Powell. What I'm talking about is what they call the bebop era. But it's, see, people, they, they, they don't know what they're talking about when they say, oh, bebop, if you play anything you want. No. There was a method to their madness, very important method. That's what I, I heard. And when the, the structure of the harmony, it's very complex, complex, because you have one note on one chord, and then a, a chord on top. You have three or four notes, that's still classical. But you have five or se seven notes, you become a chord like that, with nine, nine notes. That I don't want to get into it, too technical, but when I heard, I heard that, and I realized that they were not playing any, just anything. They were playing within the chord, fast. And I said, these guys are genius. So I became, I became very, 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 very 
blinded by that. Mm -hmm. And I started to study it, and I started to, from the records, I started to buy records. And from the records I learned a lot. So, let me tell you very fast what happened in this particular thing. From the studies I did in Buenos Aires, I wanted to know more and more than, not modern jazz, nobody would teach me modern jazz. I had to learn myself from the records and take dictation practically, and I learned. But I needed somebody to teach me classical harmonic, classical composition, class, classical counterpoint, all the levels. And there was, once I went in a classic Florida, in Florida Street, there was a, at that time, there was a organization called Asociación Nueva Musica, Association of New Music, and they gave lectures. This in, in the classic Florida, they, I don't remember, now it doesn't exist. And there was a composer whose name was Juan Carlos Paz, and he gave a lecture, and I was so impressed. So I, I went and I, at the end of his lecture, I went to the little stage, and I said, do you teach, do you give private lessons? Oh, yes. So how can I, he gave me a telephone number, we arranged and started to go sometimes to his house, sometimes he gave me the lessons in a cafe in Calle Corrientes. And all the pe people, friends, intellectuals, uh, writers, uh, filmmakers, actors stopped because they knew him. They were much older than me, and he was also much older than me. He was, but he was a fantastic. Uh, he, he also wrote books. One book, I, it's still my Bible, in, in, in in all the things he says. And he has a sense of humor, fantastic. And one day, because he knew everything going on, he comes and says, because he knew many people, he says, the French, I mean, the Paris Conservatory is granting scholarships. You have to, yeah, I say, how do I, how do I get that? So well, you have to go to the French embassy and ask all the things that you have to do. You have probably signed papers. So I went to the French embassy, and they told me, when I told them I was standing on Grand Cross, oh, great. If, I, I, I spoke French because I was, my, my, my bachillerato, bachelorship, mm -hmm. I was doing it. This is one thing my father Bachelor's did. degree. Yeah. Eh? Bachelor's degree. Yeah, but my father, from all the Colegio Nacional, uh, the, the bachelor country, they were all, they belong, all of them, to the Ministerio de Instrucción Pública. I don't know, this is, I don't know how you're going to translate that. 
pero there was only one that belonged to the university because all the teachers were teaching at the university they were doctors in, in, not only in medicine but in, in everything philosophy were and every uh, material every, there was very difficult to get in and difficult to get out because <laughs> first of all it was not free because it didn't belong to the you had to pay a tuition and my father luckily paid my everybody was saying why are you send him there it's too difficult but this is before i met juan carlos plus this is i was 13 years old when i started the colegio nacional and fantastic and that's what they taught french and english but not just uh, begin the first lesson in French, they start talking in French. For for the compagnie, for avoir CB. And you have to go from there. And you have to talk French. So when I went when I went to the embassy, I was I, I, I was speaking French. And they they, they gave me papers that came came from the conservatory. I had to with uh, make the there were tests but, but, but they, they put me in a room without piano of course past told me that when you compose stay away from the piano that's a prof you hear everything here and you write it like when you write a letter you don't need a piano and I go to the, I did the test, all the questions, they, it was written, and they sent it back to, to the Paris Conservatory. And I came back, I was waiting very nervous because I didn't know, I didn't want my parents to find out because they would be very sad if I leave Argentina. We were a very close family. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to go, not because I mean, I, I, it was my career, my, my vision. Welcome back to Tango Angeles. A few shows ago, if you remember, we had an episode on uh, Osvaldo Fresedo. You will remember where Dizzy Gillespie enters the tango landscape. And what makes the world of music so rich and profound is the fluid exchange of new ideas crossing boundaries. And yes, tango, jazz, classical, each have their own distinctive sound, yet part of the entire musical kaleidoscope. And people like music. We are distinct individuals and yet very much part of the same fabric of life. Today we find ourselves in a world fragmented, like the shattering of a porcelain dish on a concrete floor. And like music, where the tango, jazz, and classical can intertwine without destroying each other, so can people. Let's not lose sight of that. We are, all of us, we are all that we have. So now some of you might be there thinking to yourselves, uh, hey, I turned into here a tango show, what happened? But now you understand that it's impossible to make a surgical separation among these rich 
musical elements. And not only is it impossible, uh, but it would be wrong. I want you to hear, I'm going to play uh, Dizzy Gillespie jamming with Lalo Schifrin in a funk number. We have shortened the song. Um, you know how Lalo talks about the method to the madness of the bebop music? The same thing happens to bebop's cousin, funk, that emerged from the mid-60s. Take a listen. We'll be right back. Chance and destiny are synonymous. This Borgesian wisdom is a running thread in Lalo's work and life. So the next segment spans his time in Paris and his return to Argentina and working with the best jazz musicians in Argentina. He meets Dizzy Gillespie in 1956 on a tour sponsored by the U.S. State Department, and that changed everything. We'll be right back. Lalo, was, was that around the time you played with Piazzolla in Paris, right? Oh, no, this is... And much later. Yeah. Much later. Only okay. once. Because he was there and he invited me, but I, I was not working with him. Mm -hmm. So did you end up going to Paris around that time? Yeah, I went. And I stayed there four years. And I got my first prizes in all the subjects. But then, this is what's interesting. You know, Jorge Luis Borges said something incredible. He said, chance and destiny are synonymous. El azar y el destino son synonymous because when when I finished the conservatory, yeah, I, I had offers to work in in France, but and I saw that 
the only way that I would make progress and pro no matter how much progress I was making, I would make, I would end up maybe being the best thing to be the director of a conservatory in a city uh, in Lille. There's nothing wrong with that, but I, I, I didn't see myself in that. I, I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm a doer. So I went back to Argentina and see if, what can I do. I arrived very. I, I I I arrived from Paris on March of 1956. I remember this very well. And I I put together a big band, Radio Splendid. I got a sponsor. Not only I I also started to be on television. So my visibility started, and I became let's say popular, where I started to go tours with the band. The best Argentinian jazz musician, for, to give you an example, Gato Barbieri was tenor saxophone on the band. He played with Gato? Eh? You played with Gato? He played with me. <laughs> it was my band. Wow. I did all the arrangements. Wow. And it was four trumpets, Corvini brothers, you know, Franco and Albertino Corvini, you know them? Corvini, I've heard of them, yes. Uh, fantastic. Vicho Casalla in one of the trombones. The best Argentinian jazz musicians. And I conducted from the piano. I, I played the piano and conducted them. Pitching Marseille on drums. It was incredible. Because they were also influenced. If Dizzy was influenced on my Pitchy was influenced by Max Roach. And Gato was influenced by John Coltrane. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they were all, you are, you are, tell me who you like and I'll tell you who you are. And this was fantastic. So I'm rehearsing with the band and all of a sudden, in September of 1956, the State Department, by this is what I'm talking about, the luck and the destiny. The State Department, American State Department, was sending bands all over the world because there was a Cold War, and they wanted to attract the young people to be pro-Americans because jazz it's a language that popular and the Russians didn't do that. The Soviet Union didn't do that. And that was, well, it helped me. Nothing about politics. I didn't involve in politics. But when they came dizzy, you were sending Duke Kennington to other countries, Count Basie to other countries. Dizzy happened to be sent to Argentina and he played in Buenos Aires. The there was a theater in Calle Corrientes, that is anymore, Casino, Teatro Casino. You ever heard of I've it? I've heard of it, yes. Well, it was, it was not the Teatro Colón, but it was a great concert hall. And he comes with his band, but he has the same formation. Four trumpets. One of them was Quincy Jones. They were great. 
uh, four trombones also, five, five saxophones. One of them was Phil Woods. I don't know if you... I've heard the name, yes. Well, incredible. We individually, I want to say we, our band, we decided individually, we, no, we didn't make a plot. Each one of the members of the band, when they knew that this was playing theater casino, they didn't want to play with me, but I didn't want to play either. So we had to tell Radio Splendid and the Canal 7 television that we that, that week we are out. We are, we are not working. And we went to the concert. And I went every day, and there was every night, and there was a matinee on Saturday and Sunday. And we went to the matinees also. I became friends with some, for instance, Billy Mitchell, tenor saxophone. We became friends. Uh, they were all fantastic. So I, there was one, the guy who got me to get into the, a very rich guy, said maybe we should show the, this is band, how is Argentinian jazz? Why don't you play for them? Yeah, but where? No, I, I don't worry. I'll rent. I'll rent a little theater, and I'll make a little party. Uh, we can have tables with. We can serve lunch, and a little bit drinks, and so I, with that's what we did. Including, we invited this is wife, Lorraine Gillespie. Wow, huh? That's amazing. Yeah. And we we learned a lot. We learned. Uh, we did a show on Osvaldo Fresedo. Uh, some months oh, ago, yeah, yeah. and we him. learned how the connection between him and, and Dizzy, and how he Dizzy got involved in doing some tango interpretations, which w was amazing to listen to. Yes, yes, I would have, now in, I like Fresedo, but I think I met him personally, but I would think Dizzy would have been better with Horacio Salgan, or with Piazzolla. Because they are more, 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 more jazz, right? Or well, no jazz, but they will have more possibilities of uh, work together. Anyway, Presado was great guy, and this place that this guy rented was not far from the the Presado own rendezvous, rendezvous, si. exactly. He and Eduardo Armani were partners. It was not far. So I play, we played some of our, we couldn't play the whole repertoire, but I, cho I chose like 30 minutes of music or 45 minutes of music without stop. In the middle of the lunch and all that. And at, at the end of my last number, many of, many of my own compositions, but some of the standards in which I arranged myself. And at the end, they're all up. I see the, the tables, and they're all applauding. But while they're applauding, this is not there. His, his place, his uh, chair is empty. You know why? Because at that moment, he was walking toward the stage. And he says to me, this is unbelievable, but it's true. 
Tienes to be, who wrote these charts? I mean, who wrote these uh, arrangements or composition? I said, I did. I said, would you like to come to the United States? <laughs> and that's it. That's why I'm here. That's an amazing story. Wow. I mean, that's talk about luck and destiny. Yeah. Yes. I found the words very, very touching. And it was, my, my whole life has been like that. For instance, I was in New York City with Dizzy because he, with him, was a fantastic, he taught me many things. He taught me how to accompany because jazz musicians play all the time chords. And I knew, I knew he liked my solos because I, I was influenced by Bad Powell. I, I knew the jazz. That's why he hired me. But there are so many things I did not know. And it was, for instance, he says, I, I play, he says, I play a wind instrument. And no matter, no matter how many notes I play, and he plays fast, and always within those chords, he says, because I'm a wind instrument, that sometimes I, I have to take a breath. That's why you bang, don't play while I'm playing very fast. See, things like that. And it was incredible. And I was very happy. So, after three years, this is a coincidence, you know, I wrote, I, do you know, one of the things, most important things I wrote for him, the Gillespiana Suite. You know, how do I explain? The Brazilian composer, Villalobos, wrote an homage to Bach. He wrote the Bachianas Brasileiras. Bachiana. So I wrote the suite Gillespiana for Gillespie. Mm -hmm. because he wrote incredible compositions and they are still being played. So I wrote that for him and it was a whole event. Next up I want to play a tiny sampling of this uh, beautiful piece, the Gillespiana Suite. In fact, the last segment called Toccata and when we think about toccatas, we usually think about Bach, but this modern jazz number is equally mind-blowing. As the term toccata, or touch, indicates, this short live album excerpt clearly showcases both Gillespie and Schifrin's virtuosity. Take a listen. Thank you. 
More on uh, chance and destiny as a recurring theme in Lalo's life. Dizzy Gillespie's tremendous influence on Lalo's professional and personal life is featured in the next segment. And by the way, you might say Lalo is a lucky man, but quoting the Roman philosopher Seneca, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And I would add tremendous talent to that as well. Take a listen. We'll be right back. Well, we've arrived at the point in our interview where we can... Um, there's obviously so much more we could talk about with Lalo and his amazing history and music. Oh, I was with... Did I tell you the... I didn't finish telling you the story with the guy who was a, 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 the agent of G Jimmy Smith. I'm in the airport with Dizzy going, now we have a program. The, do you know the empresario Norman Granz? No. Oh, he was one of the greatest jazz empresarios ever. Very distinguished, white hair, very, very good looking and very well dressed. Very refined, Norman Granz. He organized tours. The title of the tours was just at the Philharmonic. The reason he put just at the Philharmonic is that he wanted to make jazz very dignified, which I also interested. For instance, the Gillespiana Suite has five movements, like in classical music, it's a suite. And the first movement is prelude, you see? There's nothing in jazz called prelude. Then the second movement is blues, because I'm, I'm exploring the whole personality of Dizzy. The third movement is called Panamericana, because the interest that Dizzy had in Latin American music and all that. The fourth movement is called Africana, because Dizzy comes from the origins of Africa and their rhythms. And the fifth movement is called Toccata, which has nothing to do with jazz. It's a rhythm that I put into jazz, but it has nothing to do with jazz. The toccatas were like Bach, uh, toccata for organ, and ma many classical musicians. It's a, it also is music from the 18th century in Europe, and it was not a dance, but it was a, a instrumental music, very, very virtuoso, very... So that's the last movement, you see? There's already a connection. And the, the Gillespiana became very known, uh, not only in the jazz, but for the public, too. I, I got a lot of royalties from that. So this agent of Jimmy Smith, whose name was Clarence Avant. Clarence Avant, A-V-A-N-T. Motown? Yeah. Motown. He, he did Motown. Well, he lives now not far from here. Oh. We are still friends. Can you imagine somebody who's still friend with an agent? Most of the musicians said, oh, my agent stole my money. This was one of the most uh, decent, honest people I ever met. I tell you, let me finish with this, uh, continue with the story. As I am going 
to the plane, the airplane, in the airport, New York airport, not here. And Jimmy Smith, the, the program that Dizzy had was, you know, always there is first part of the program and then intermission in theaters, you know, concerts, and then second part of the program. So the way Norman Graham's arranger was Jimmy Smith, who was very known and very important, first part of the program. Intermission, and now Dizzy with the big band, and you know, I was there. So as I'm going to the plane, this Clarence Avon comes and says, didn't you write the Gillespiana suite? Yes. Oh, when you come back, call me, because this is my telephone number, he says. Call me, just. And I, there was a something about him I liked. I didn't know him, but I liked him. So I did the tour, I don't know where, or how many months, or weeks, or whatever. No, my, my weeks. And I come back to New York. I arrived to New York, and I, you know, do the, and all of a sudden I remember this guy. And I have his telephone. I called him. And he invited me for lunch. And during the lunch, he says, Are you all only going to be doing jazz with Dizzy? I said, Where else? I mean, I'm very Dizzy was playing very well. I was very happy. I, he was more, than, at that moment, was more, more than a leader. He was a friend. And a, a, a father. A, he always protected me from the drug dealers because they wanted to sell me drugs. They were they want to jazz musicians, and they were they were terrible. And he was protecting me from there. There was one jazz musicians too. Hey, Lalo, no, leave him alone. He was a don't. I didn't want drugs anyway, but in order to avoid problems, this was like a father for me second father. And Clarence says to me, are you going to always be this, always play jazz? Yeah, no, yeah, but tell me something. This is older, old now, and he's not going to be with us all the time. What are you going to do after? I don't know. Well, think about it. What you like to do after you, if you have to leave Daisy? Well, the only thing I would like to do would be to write music for movies and television. I said, oh, well, that's easy. What? This is talking about Borges again. What do you mean easy? Oh, that, no problem. Because I know the head of the, he knew everybody. That's why he became the head of, everybody knows him and everything. He knew the, the, the head of the, the music publishing of MGM Inc. At that time, MGM was the biggest company, uh, film, um, film company in the world, um, among other things. I said, his name, the name of the guy was Arnold Maxim. Arnold Maxim. So he knew him. So he told him, you have to get, I, did, I didn't meet at that moment Ronald Marx. So he told him, there's a great musician, you have to get my movie. And he did. I had to come to Hollywood to write it. 
and the success was so big that all all the heads of music department, all the companies, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, at that time I'm talking, uh, well, all of them, Columbia Columbia Pictures, they all started to call me and. I was getting one at the so I had to tell this uh, this I had to tell him I was leaving I had to leave. It was very painful for me because it's like telling your father you have to leave. I already did with my first father and now I had to do it again. And this is no no problem. I said well, you want me to train another pianist to tell him all the things I because he didn't write it down uh, the way of, of a company or I said, no, you don't need to do it. And, uh, he invited me for dinner. It's okay, Lalo, anything that I said, I do, uh, this is anything I can do. We became as a matter of fact, I was seeing him more uh, he was calling me, Oh, this is interesting for you. He, he learned in Buenos Aires, I didn't teach him, an, an Argentinian expression, a quien le ganaste. So when I'm in here now, married to Donna and all that, a telephone call, I answers, a quien le ganaste. <laughs> that means... Who did you beat? Eh? Who did you beat? Yeah, it would be a free translation. This is a literal translation. The free translation would be, who do you think you are? No, something like that. I can't ask. He said that all the time. So now I came to Hollywood and that's, the, that's why I'm here, in this house. How long have you lived here? Oh, like 41 years. Wow. Because this house used to belong to Groucho Marx. Groucho Marx built this house. That's amazing. Huh? <laughs> That's amazing. You can take pictures of the front. And there, are, there is a documentary about Groucho Marx, which you see the whole, the whole front same. My wife changed things. This studio didn't exist. She made a build for my... Beautiful. The house is with, you know... The Beautiful studio. Oh, yeah. It's, it's better than nothing. <laughs> better than most. Welcome back to Tango Angeles. Uh, what an incredible, incredible story, uh, especially with uh, Dizzy uh, Gillespie years. Up next, um, let's play another one of his incredible movie themes, Enter the Dragon. This is, of course, a famous Bruce Lee movie. And listen to the song. It uh, the music, it really is amazing how he captures the Asian theme in this, and it's obvious his understanding of ethnomusicology, uh, that it is very deep. Take a listen.
Enter the Dragon. You might have noticed I, uh, during the course of my time with Lalo, I've been trying hard to veer the interview towards tango. After all, this is a tango show. But Lalo's repertoire is so vast and varied that it was a mission impossible for me to pin him down into one genre. So next uh, part of our interview, finally, we get to talk about the movie Tango. And on the other hand, profiling a musical giant like Lalo without at least giving an overview of his vast musical and intellectual landscape would also be the wrong thing to do. And so here goes uh, Carlos Saras Tango, starting with Tango Bárbaro. Thank you. 
let's talk about the movie Tango. Uh, for me, it was um, one, of my, one of my first introductions into tango when I saw the movie, and I was mesmerized by the dancing, the story, and the music. Well, uh, and the music really captured my heart because it just resonated in my body somehow. I, it really hooked me without knowing a lot about tango music. I was having a vacation in Puerto Rico, in the beach, with my wife. We had no children yet. We were the two of us. And an Argentinian guy who I knew, a very good friend, his name was, was he died, Juan Codazzi, with two Gs at the end, Codazzi. Juan Codazzi comes and says, you know, you have to come right away to Madrid. Why? Because there's a director, Carlos Aura, who wants you to help him with the music or the movie he wants to do. He didn't tell me what. So, so, yeah, but I'm on vacation. No, no, but he wants you. And I talked to my wife, I, okay. I went to Madrid, and I got to his house, there's a lot of uh, people, but they, they were cameramen, no, no working, just there, for like a business thing. But they were all in the, in the film activity, all of them. And, said, oh, Laro, Car Carlos Aura, who I knew he had won an Oscar, for the big uh, Carmen, you know, he, he did the movie Carmen. And I knew, I, I was very moved by that. And he says, look, let's go for a walk. He left everybody in his house, and we started to walk in the rue, the, the rue I was in French, the streets of Madrid. And we walk and walk, and he says, you know something? They're paying me to do a movie about tango. My mother used to dance tango, but I don't know anything about tango. So I said, what can I do for it? He wanted me, not because I was an expert on tango. It was Salgan or Piazzolla. I was su surprised. But because of the musicality, I don't know, something he, he liked. And he, says, and he knew that I knew about tango also because, look, a little parenthesis. When I did the music of Enter the Dragon, I used music of the Orient. And many people from the Orient, from Japan, from Hong Kong, they came and told me, how do you know this music? Well, <laughs> one reason I know is because in the Paris Conservatory, we had a class called Ethnomusicology. Ethnic music. I, I, without being flamboyant, or I can tell you that 
basically I can write music of any country because I know the folklore of every country. The music, folkloric music of every country. If not, if I don't, I, I can make research, but knowing what I have to do. Mm-hmm. What, what, when you make research, you, you don't have to wait too much time. You don't have time. You know the basic structure of the music for the different countries, and from there you build. You know, the, you have to know, for in, in the case of Enter the Dragon, once you know the scales, because that the music of the Orient is based on a pentatonic, five, five, five note scale, which is also the same scale that's used in Bolivia and Peru, which means there was a, 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 with, a with it in the Pacific Ocean, there was an interchange of tribes and people, I'm talking thousands of years ago. If you hear sometimes, when I did the music of Che, Che Guevara, you know that. Mm-hmm. Well, the head of the music department of 20th century folks, which was, said, well, you have Chinese music there. No, I said Bolivian, which is where Che Guevara was. I did it purposely because he was killed in Bolivia. So it, it made sense. So I knew the scales and I knew the sound. For instance, I could imitate the sound. I don't have the instrument. Uh, no, 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 no Hollywood musician, uh, the works of the orchestras in, in the studios, they don't have, they don't know the instruments they have to play. They don't never play it. But I imitate that. For instance, by putting oboe unison with a flute and playing, telling to play a little bending, not exact. And that's the way it was. So uh, I was telling this. Carlos Saure oh, yeah. in the movie. I, I told him that. If he doesn't know too much about tango, oh, also the most important thing I told him was he didn't know what to do. He, he didn't know what to do with it. I don't know. I love tango. My mother used to dance tango, and they want me. They are, I tell you the truth, and this is confidential. She says they are paying me a lot of money. But I really didn't know what to do. I said, well, I thought right away, I said, why don't you do the Fellini did in eight and a half, which is a, a director who has to do a movie, he doesn't know what to do. And if, they, if you look at the movie now, thinking what I said, you're going to realize that it's a parallel. It's not the same thing, of course, but it's a parallel. The, 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 there is an actor who plays the director, like, Mastroianni played in eight and a half. So that's the way it happened. Very interesting because he loved the idea and that's the way he did. But Lalo, the, the music that you wrote for that movie, Tango, I mean, for me, in, in, in that being a musician, it goes well beyond just the movie score. There's something very deep about that music that just... Thank you. How, Thank you. How do you... Uh, is it just... 
it's in your head. You just imagine it and then you write it. I love the project. And you know, if, first of all, let me tell you this. There's a difference in write, as a, for a composer, to write music for a movie that is already made, finished, like Daddy Harry. When, I, when they hired me, there was already cut, I mean, shoot, shot, uh, cut, and the only thing I have to do is to work with a music editor to find the temp, or work with, with the director, the Don Siegel, to work with the director to see what kind of music and what, how long it is. Uh, we start here, with, you know, you know, you don't do all, like we call wallpaper music. It's, you, you do it for the scenes, you know. So that was, but in tango, I could do my own music, my own feel. There was nothing, there was no movie before I wrote it. And so that's my, that's the, the reason. Right. So my question is, is because of the music you wrote, did it help influence how the movie turned out? Well, some of As opposed to the know, other way. There, there's not all my music. There's music of Salgan, there's La Cumparsita, yes. there's Gardel. That's not no, no my music. It's already composed by Paciol, Piazol. Tangazo. Sí. Tangazo, eh, eh, a fuego lento. That's already, they, they did it. The only thing I have to do is something that he needed. For instance, what is to do, because he knew as a director, do a tango for a percussion, percussion. And I did, and or the immigrants. He wanted to show, show the things about the, all the things that he needed, and they were not done before. That, that's why I did. Mm -hmm. And that's why it has a special feeling. Hugely successful movie for tango. It's difficult to do tango movies and have them be this internationally recognized, that it appeals to a wide audience of people. No, but this did. This did, yes, I agree. Two more pieces from the movie Tango. I'm sure you'll recognize them. The first one, Recuerdo. And because we love and honor Juan Carlos Copes and all that he has done for Tango, we're including a lovely fast tempo tune called A Juan Carlos Copes. He was, of course, one of the main characters of the movie Tango. And I just want to say we love you, Juan Carlos Copes.
Welcome back to Tango Angeles. Again, I want to remind our listeners we are broadcasting live this evening from the historic Sunset Gower Studios on the Universal Broadcasting Radio and Television Network. And also I want to be sure and thank all of the listeners right now listening to our live broadcast. Lalo continues uh, working and one of his more recent uh, works, an album called Letters from Argentina, released in May of 2006, was the recipient of the Latin Grammy Award for the best tango album. This is a musical memoir uh, of sorts, if you will, enhanced by Lalo's imagination of his homeland, tango, chacarera, malambo, etc. Lalo is still writing music, as I said, and working with top musicians in various genres. He says he's not retired. Talent and productivity, what a great combination. So up next, I want to play for you Malambo de los Llanos. And again, this is from uh, the album Letters from Argentina. Llanos refers to the mountainous, arid area east of the Andes. And Malambo is a dance born in the Pampas around 1600. Malambo is peculiar in that it is danced by men only. It's a very masculine and very rhythmic a dance. The zapateo, basically, it's a fancy footwork, kind of like tapping, and it's a major feature of this dance. And by the way, um, Argentine-American bass player uh, currently in New York, Pablo Aslan, is also featured in this album. And I just want to say hola, Pablo. Malambo de los Llanos. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
After we finished our interview, uh, Lalo uh, led us to his grand piano and did an improvisation on the timeless El Choclo. Thank you very much. You're welcome. What a huge... Oh, I didn't uh, do an improvisation. No. There was El Choclo. El Choclo. Okay. Don't record it, eh? El Choclo, uh, which we didn't record. It was a real treat that, we'll, that we will never forget. And there was so much more that we talked about. He produced a majestic choral piece with Placido Domingo, sung entirely in the original Aztec language, and it's called Cantos Aztecas. We could have gone on for days talking about his music and listening to fantastic stories because Lalo has been living fully and richly in his art. But we couldn't even squeeze in all of the interview recordings into this one episode. After the uh, recorder stopped recording, we were treated to also the screening of Cantos Aztecas. And when the show was over, he turned to us and in a, I don't recall exact the words that he used, but I'm going to paraphrase and hopefully I won't butcher this, but it was as if a man that has produced so much in his life and wondering if he's done enough to contribute to the world. It was truly a magical moment. Well, what can I say? That was one of the most profound interviews that I have uh, done since starting this radio program. And where I came into this thinking that I'm going to just uh, corner Lalo into just a tango experience, uh, not only was I very wrong, uh, but again, I was, uh, I learned so much about what tango is really and what it isn't and about all the connections that we 
that we make in life and also with music. And so, really, we're not we're not we're talking about nothing less than music being the manifestation of the human spirit and obviously having a vast knowledge such as Lalo's influences our lives so, again, profoundly. I feel so lucky that so much beauty is all around us. And the irony is that despite of all of our obsessions, for example, over money, the most beautiful things in life are absolutely within the reach of every man and woman, including and not least of which ourselves and with each other. Lalo, I know you're listening. I want to be sure and thank you once again for your generosity, inviting us into your home, into your studio, and sharing so much of your life with us. Thank you very much for tuning in this evening. It's great to be back in Tango Angeles in the studio behind this microphone that I love so much. On October 13th, we are going to an Otros Aires concert, an event hosted here in Los Angeles by Ilona Glenarski. And you might still be able to get tickets from uh, Living Tango. Just Google Otros Aires in Los Angeles. And I also want to acknowledge uh, uh, the folks in, in Phoenix. That's right, that's in Arizona. I was there a couple of weeks back I decided to attend the weekly Thursday milonga called Nostalgias at the Mijana restaurant, hosted, a milonga hosted by Neri and Jeff. And what a very special evening it turned out to be, including a live quartet led by pianist Gregorio Murtagian. Okay, so here is how serendipitous life can be. Gregorio is also from Saavedra, the same neighborhood that I grew up in. And although we are but a few years apart, I'm actually younger than he is. <laughs> we went to the same all-boys school. We only lived a few blocks apart from each other. I also want to thank uh, Sedona Jeannie, Neri, and Melissa for the best tandas. All the people I saw that night I hadn't seen in a long time, and even those who knew me because of our radio program. It, it was really an amazing evening, and thanks again for making me feel so very welcome. During the summer break, we, and that means me, EJ, Ramon, and Mercedes, we call ourselves Los Cuatro, and Heidi, of course, have been very busy. We renovated the Argentine Association using La Leonesa in Buenos Aires as the inspiration and started a new monthly milonga called Milonga Nuestra. Our next event is October 21st, every third Saturday of the month. And um, this month, uh, we're going to have a very special guest, Alicia Pons, queen of the abrazos, and gracias Daniel y Laura for bringing her. If you happen to be in the area, please drop by. Uh, better yet, send us a message at milonganuestra at gmail.com. We'd love to have you there. As always, if you love our show, please 
spread the word and share it with your friends. Go to tangoangeles.com and listen to our previous episodes. You are welcome to support our show by using our Amazon link to make your purchases. Simply click on the Sponsors tab and you can click on the Amazon logo. You can bookmark it and always use that page when you make your routine purchases on Amazon. Thank you very much. La Comparsita tonight is brought to you by Lalo Schifrin from the movie Tango. And this has been Tango Angeles from the historic Sunset Gower Studios in Hollywood, California. And I am Ronaldo. Good night. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.